Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Okay, let's please give a warm round of applause to Daniel Alarcon. Thank you. Um, that wasn't embarrassing at all. That was great. Um, it's it's really cool to be here, and it's it's really cool to see so many friends and um, and this bookstore is so lovely. Oh, there's another friend. Hello. Um, wow. Um, so I'm I. I I, um, I'm going to read, I think, from the beginning. I was just telling some friends at the beginning uh, of the evening that, I, uh, you know, you go and you do readings every single night, every single night. And so then sometimes you go, oh, I should stop reading the same section. It's really boring to me. Um, so then I'll just read a different section. And I was doing a reading at a women's college in, in Massachusetts. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'll just read a different section. And I just opened and randomly read chapter three that begins with a masturbation scene in a theater. <laughs> and I, was, I just wanted to die. I was like, uh, these poor young ladies. I'll never be invited back to the women's college circuit. Um, anyway. I'm always welcome on the women's college circuit. Thank you, Leela. Okay, so I'm going to read the first chapter, PG, for all the kids in the audience. Amina. During the war, which Nelson's father called the anxious years, a few radical students at the conservatory founded a theater company. They read the French surrealists and improvised adaptations of Quechua myths. They smoked cheap tobacco and sang protest songs with vulgar lyrics. They laughed in public as if it were a political act, baring their teeth in frightening children. Their ranks were drawn, broadly speaking, from the following overlapping circles of youth. The long hairs, the working class, the sex craze, the posers, the provincials, the alcoholics, the emotionally needy, the rabble-rousers, the opportunists, the punks, the hangers-on, and the obsessed. Nelson was just a boy then, moody, thoughtful, growing up in a suburb of the capital with his head bent over a book. He was secretly in love with a slight, brown-haired girl from school with whom he'd exchanged actual words on only a handful of occasions. At night, Nelson imagined the dialogues they would have one day. He and this waifish, perfectly ordinary girl whom he loved. Sometimes he would act these out for his brother, Francisco. Neither had ever been to the theater. The company named Diciembre coalesced around the work of a few strident, though novice, playwrights and quickly became known for their daring trips into the conflict zone, where they lived out their slogan, theater for the people, at no small risk to the physical safety of the actors. Such was the tenor of the era that while sacrifices of this sort were applauded by certain sectors of the public, many others condemned them, even equated them with terrorism. In 1983, when Nelson was only five, a few of Diciembre's members were harassed by police in the town of Belen, a relatively minor affair which nonetheless made the papers prelude to a more serious case in Las Velas, where members of the local defense committee briefly held three actors captive, even roughed them up a bit, believing them to be Cuban agents. The trio had adapted a short story by Alejo Carpentier, quite convincingly by all accounts. 
nor were they entirely safe in the city. In early April 1986, after two performances of a piece titled The Idiot President, Diciembre's lead actor and playwright was arrested for incitement and left to languish for the better part of a year at a prison known as Collectors. His name was Henry Nunez, and his freedom was, for a brief time, a cause celebre. Letters were written on his behalf in a handful of foreign countries by mostly well-meaning people who'd never heard of him and who had no opinion of his work. Somewhere in the archives of one or another of the national radio stations lurks the audio of a jailhouse interview. This serious young man, liberally seasoning his statements with citations of Camus and Ionesco, describing a prison production of the idiot president with inmates in all the starring roles. Criminals and delinquents have an intuitive understanding of a play about national politics, Henry said in a firm, uncowed voice. Nelson, a month shy of his eighth birthday, chanced to hear this interview. His father, Sebastian, stood at the kitchen counter preparing coffee with a look of concern. Dad, young Nelson asked, what's a playwright? Sebastian thought for a moment. He'd wanted to be an actor when he was his son's age. A storyteller, he said. A playwright is someone who makes up stories. The boy was intrigued but not satisfied with this definition. That evening, he brought it up with his brother Francisco who responded the way he always did to almost anything Nelson said aloud with a look of puzzlement and annoyance as if there were a set of normal things that all younger brothers knew instinctively to do in the presence of their elders but which Nelson had never learned. Francisco fiddled with the radio. He sighed. Playwrights make up conversation. They call them scripts. That crap you make up about your little fake girlfriend, for example. Francisco was 12, an age at which all is forgiven. Eventually, he would leave for the United States, but long before his departure, he was already living as if he were gone, as if this family of his, mother, father, brother, mattered hardly at all. He knew exactly how to end conversations. No recordings of the aforementioned prison performance of the idiot president have been found. By the time of his release in November of that same year, Henry was much thinner and older. He no longer spoke with that firm voice. In fact, he hardly spoke at all. He gave no interviews. In January, in response to an uprising by inmates, two of the more volatile sections of collectors were raised, bombed, and burned by the army, and the men who'd made up the cast of the idiot president died in the assault. They were shot in the head or killed by shrapnel. Some had the misfortune to be crushed beneath falling concrete walls. In all, 343 inmates died, vanished, and though Henry was not there, a part of him died that day too. The incident garnered international attention, a few letters of protest from European capitals, and then it was forgotten. Henry lost Rogelio, his best friend and cellmate, his lover, though he wouldn't have used that word at that time, not even to himself. He did not take the stage again for nearly 15 years. But a troop must be bigger than a single personality. Diciembre responded to the curfew, the bombings, and the widespread fear with a program of drama-based bacchanals so drunk on youth and art they might as well have been living in another universe. Gunshots were deliberately misheard, interpreted as celebratory fireworks, and used as a pretext to praise the local joie de vivre. Blackouts put them in a mood for romance. In its glory days at the end of the 1980s, Diciembre felt less like a theater collective and more like a movement. They staged marathon, all-night shows in the newly abandoned buildings and warehouses at the edges of the old city when there was no electricity, which was often. They rigged up lights from car batteries or set candles about the stage. Barring that, they performed in the dark, the spectral voices of the actors emerging from the limitless black. They became known for their pop reworkings of Garcia Lorca, their stentorian readings of Brazilian soap opera scripts, their poetry nights that mocked the very idea of poetry. 
They celebrated on principle anything that kept audiences awake and laughing through what might have otherwise been the long and lonely hours of curfew. These shows were mythologized by theater students of Nelson's generation, and if one searched, as Nelson had, through the stands of used books and magazines clogging the side streets of the old city, it was possible to find mimeographed copies of Diciembre's programs, wrinkled and faded, but bearing that unmistakable whiff of history, the kind one wishes to have been a part of. By the time Nelson entered the conservatory in 1995, the war had been over for a few years, but was still a fresh memory. Much of the capital was being rebuilt. Perhaps it is more correct to say the capital was being reimagined as a version of itself where all that unpleasant recent history had never occurred. There were no statues to the dead, no streets renamed in their honor, no museum of historical memory. Rubble was cleared away, avenues widened, trees planted, new neighborhoods erected atop the ashes of those leveled in the conflict. Shopping malls were planned for every district of the capital and the old city, never an area with exact boundaries but a commonly employed shorthand referring to the neglected and ruined center of town, was restored block by block with an optimistic eye towards a UNESCO World Heritage designation. Traffic was rerouted to make it more walkable, dreary facades given a dash of color and the local pickpockets sent to work the outskirts by a suddenly vigilant police force. Tourists began to return and the government, at least, was happy. Meanwhile, Diciembre's legend had only grown. Many of Nelson's classmates at the conservatory claimed to have been present at one or another of those historic performances as children. They said their parents had taken them, that they had witnessed unspeakable acts of depravity and unholy union between recital and insurrection, sex and barbarism, that they remained, however many years later, unsettled, scarred, and even inspired by the memory. They were all liars. They were, in fact, studying to be liars. One imagines that students at the conservatory these days speak of other things. One imagines they are too young to remember how ordinary fear was during the anxious years. Perhaps they find it difficult to imagine a time when theater was improvised in response to terrifying headlines, when a line of dialogue delivered with a chilling sense of dread did not even require acting. But then, such are the narcotic effects of peace, and certainly no one wants to go backward. Nearly a decade after the war's nominal end, Diciembre still functioned as a loose grouping of actors who occasionally even put on a show, often in a private home, to which the audience came by invitation only. Paradoxically, now that travel outside the city was relatively safe, they hardly ever went to the interior. Was this laziness, a reasonable response to the end of hostilities, or simply middle age blunting the sharp edge of youthful radicalism? Henry, once the star playwright of the troupe, all but withdrew from it, attributing the decision not to his time in prison but to the birth of his daughter. After his prison home was raised, almost in spite of himself, he fell in love, married, and had a daughter named Anna. And then, life, domesticity, responsibilities. Before Diciembre consumed him, he studied biology enough to qualify for a teaching position at a supposedly progressive elementary school in the cantonment. The work appealed to his ego. He could talk for hours about almost anything that came to mind and his students would not complain, and in his hands, biology was less a science than an obsessive branch of the humanities. The world could, in fact, be explained, and he found it miraculous that the students listened. For extra money, he drove a taxi every other weekend, crossing the city end-to-end -end in a serviceable old Chevrolet he'd inherited from his father. Though he hadn't been inside a church since the mid-1980s, he put a bright red Jesus Loves You sticker in the front window to make potential passengers feel at ease. 
It was therapeutic, the mindlessness of driving, and the blank, sometimes dreary streets were so familiar they could not surprise him. On good days, he could avoid thinking about his life. Henry kept the giant plush teddy bear in the trunk, bringing it out for his daughter to sit with whenever he picked her up from her mother's house. The bigger she grew, Henry told me, the more his ambition dulled. Not that he blamed her. Quite the contrary. Anna, he explained, had saved him from a mediocre sort of life his friends had suffered to attain. Painters, actors, photographers, poets. Collectively, they are known as artists, just as those men and women who train in spaceflight are known as astronauts, whether or not they have been to space. He preferred not to play the part, he said. He was done pretending, a conclusion he'd come to in the aftermath of his imprisonment after his friends had been killed. But in late 2000, some veterans of the Siembre decided it was important to commemorate the founding of the troop. A series of shows was planned in the city, and, Diciembre, and a Diciembre veteran named Patalarga even suggested a tour. Naturally, they called on Henry, who with some reluctance agreed to participate, but only if a new actor could be found to join. Auditions for a touring version of The Idiot President were announced for February of 2001, and Nelson, a year out of the conservatory at the time, signed up eagerly. He and dozens of young actors just like him, more notable for their enthusiasm than for their talent, gathered in a damp school gymnasium in the district of Legon, reading lines that no one had said aloud in more than a decade. It was like stepping back in time, Henry thought, and this had been precisely his concern when the proposal was first floated. He sighed, perhaps too loudly. He felt old. Since his divorce, he saw 11-year-old Anna on alternate weekends. His students were his daughter's age. They completed science experiments where nothing at all was in play, where no possible outcome could surprise. Lately, this depressed him profoundly, and he did not know why. Whenever Anna came to stay, she brought with her a bundle of drawings tied with a string, all the work she'd done since they'd last seen each other, which she turned over to her father with great ceremony for critique. Unlike his old friends, unlike himself, his daughter was not pretending she was an artist. In that honest way, only children can be. This fact filled Henry with immense pride. They would sit on his couch and discuss in detail her works of crayon and pencil and pastel, color, composition, stroke, theme. Henry would put on his most elegant, most highfalutin accent and describe her work with big words she did not understand but found delightful, funny, and very grown up. Post-structuralist, antediluvian, proto-surrealist, aphasic. She'd smile and he'd rejoice. The anthropomorphic strain running through your art is simply remarkable. More often than not, hidden within his daughter's drawings, Henry found a terse note from Anna's mother, which was in content and tone the exact opposite of Anna's light-hearted etchings, a list of things to do, reminders about Anna's school fees, activities, appointments, words free of warmth or affect or any trace of the life they had once attempted to make together. The playfulness would cease for a moment as Henry read. What does it say, Daddy? Anna would ask. Your mother, she says she misses me. Henry and his daughter would dissolve into fits of deep-throated laughter. For a girl her age, Anna understood divorce quite well. The revival of Henry's most famous play was timed to coincide with the 15th anniversary of its truncated debut and the 20th anniversary of the founding of the company. When he told Anna's mother the idea, she congratulated him. Maybe you can get locked up again, his ex-wife said. Perhaps it will resurrect your career. A similar notion had crossed his mind too, of course, but for the sake of his pride, Henry pretended to take offense. Now, at the auditions, his career felt farther away than ever. Whatever this was, 
whether a vice, an obsession, a malady, it most certainly was not a career. Still, this dialogue, these lines he'd written so many years before, even when recited by these inexpert actors, provoked in Henry an unexpected rush of sentiment, memories of hope, anger, and righteousness, the high drama of those days, a sense of vertigo. He pressed his eyes closed. In prison, Rogelio had taught him how to place a metal coil in the carved out grooves of a brick and how to use this contraption to warm up his meals. Before that simple lesson, everything Henry ate had been cold. The prison was a frightful place, the most terrifying he'd ever been. He tried his hardest to forget it, but if there was anything about those times that had the ability to make him shudder still, it was the cold. His stay in prison, the fear, his despair, reduced to a temperature. Cold food, cold hands, cold cement floors. He remembered now how those coils had glowed bright and red and how Rogelio's smile did too and was surprised that these images moved him so. For their part, the actors were mostly too nervous or too excited to notice Henry's troubled, uneasy countenance, or if they did, they assumed it was in response to their own performances. Some, it should be noted, had no idea who he was. But Nelson did recognize Henry. He'd heard him on the radio that day, and not long after, decided to become a playwright. All these years later, and in many ways, it remained his dream. So what did he say to Henry? Something like, Mr. Nunez, it's an honor. Or, I never thought I'd have the chance to meet you, sir. The words themselves aren't that important. That he insisted on approaching the table where Henry sat absorbed in dark memories was enough. Picture it, Nelson reaching for his hero's hand, his eyes brimming with admiration, a connection between the two men, the mentor and his protege. When we spoke, Henry dismissed this idea, but I insisted. Did the playwright see something of himself in that young man, something of his own past? No, Henry responded. If you'll pardon my saying so, I was never, ever that young, not even when I was a boy. No matter. On a Monday in March 2001, Nelson was summoned to rehearsals at a theater in the old city, a block off the traffic circle near the National Library where his father had once worked. After a dismal year, a breakup, a protracted tenure at an uninteresting job, the disappointing aftermath of a graduation both longed for and feared, Nelson was simply delighted by this news. Henry was right. Nelson, almost 23, had a backpack full of scripts, a notebook jammed with handwritten stories, a head of unruly curls, and he seemed much, much younger. Perhaps this is why he got the part. His youth, his ignorance, his malleability, his ambition. The tour would begin in a month, and that is when the trouble began. Thank you. So um, since Carrie tried to embarrass me, I want to embarrass somebody who's in this room right now. There's one person in this room who read a book that had the same title uh, that was incredibly different and much, much less readable. Uh, his name is Mark, and he's sitting right here. Um, so let, I want to tell you guys this, this story because it's super important um, to me anyway. Uh, I, I, I wrote a book with this title that I finished a, a draft at uh, end of 2010, and I read it. And I, I knew the book was in trouble. I read it again, and I was like, wow, this is really, really bad. Um, and then I showed it to two friends. Mark is one of them. Uh, and uh, I was hoping that they would be like, no, you're being hard on yourself, you know? You know, that thing that writers do where you're always your worst critic? And Mark and another friend of ours uh, named Vinny very, very tactfully were like, no, you're totally right. This book is terrible. <laughs> it, was a, it was a really hard moment. Mark was very, very gentle. I think because I was staying in his house and he was afraid that I might 
put my head in his ruin in the oven and like ruin his apartment. Yeah. <laughs> so um, as a result of that conversation, um, I I uh, researched law school. I uh, uh, started a radio project with my wife. Um, I went to Peru to uh, investigate uh, Peruvian prisons for Harper's Magazine, uh, and didn't look at the book for about six months. But sort of, but shortly after that, that 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 conversation, and in the weeks that followed, I sort of was getting the idea. I was like, okay, I can either try to fix this, or I should, I probably have to just start over. Um, and um, and I, I I sort of put off a decision, but by, by the middle of this late spring, probably I was like, yeah, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to start over. Um, and then I went up to um, to the Headlands uh, um, Center for the Arts, which is in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. And I, I went there for like six weeks. And I had, um, at that point, I decided, yeah, I'm going to throw it out. I kept like eight pages of that 400-page manuscript and, um, and started over. Eventually, I folded some scenes back in and, and some lines that I really liked. Um, just kind of shoehorned them in. But, uh, but basically, I started over and I jettisoned everything that sucked about that book, which was, which was a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was difficult to do. It was, it was kind of scary to do. But there was one thing that I, I think kind of the universe takes care of you in certain ways. Um, and one thing was the, the, there's an entire section of this novel that's set in a prison, um, the prison that Henry Nunez spent a lot of time in. And when I started writing the book in 2007, um, I didn't know anything about Peruvian prisons. Um, so I couldn't have written this book back then because I just didn't have the context or the, the knowledge. Um, I hadn't spent much time in Peruvian prisons at all. Um, and uh, as it happened, um, that was the year that, uh, that I met a, f a friend of mine named Carlos who ended up taking me inside the prisons. Originally to talk about my book, my first two books with uh, with former former terrorists and uh, members of the Shining Path, because he was like, "Oh, you wrote a book about about that stuff. You should meet them." So I was like, "Okay," um, and I went and I met them and, and had really fascinating conversations about my book. They had they were very opinionated about it, as you might imagine. Um, and uh, and then I I was you know the first time I'd gone, I'd only ever visited a prison in New York. I'd visited Rikers years ago, um, but Peruvian prisons were completely different and much crazier uh, and visually very fascinating and um, and, and scary in, in, a, in a cinematic way, you know, like almost like something out of Dante. Um, and so I started spending as much time as I could, could in, in Lurigancho and eventually when I was sort of uh, floundering about and not knowing what to do with my book, I went um, and did that piece for Harper's and ended up actually spending a night inside Lurigancho. Um, um, and and investigating, you know, kind of getting to know the social structure in a way that I hadn't before, you know, just because I hadn't been able to spend that much time inside. Um, and uh, so then when I got to, to Marin Headlands, I had, you know, I mentioned Henry, I mean, the thing you guys need, uh, Henry did not appear in that previous book, I don't think. I mean, maybe the tour was mentioned very briefly. But I, 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 I sort of re recreated the book Nelson was a character, and I narrated an entire different and much less interesting part of Nelson's life. Um, and so when I started working on this, I, I really got into the tour and his his role as an actor and, and going off into the countryside. And, and basically the novel narrates 
you know, the trouble that begins once they go off into the countryside. And, um, and part of the trouble has to do with Nelson's, with Henry's past, Henry Nunez, the playwright, who was in prison, who has all these kind of unresolved traumas from having been in, in prison years ago and having lost his lover, Rogelio, and all the things that, that happen. Um, and um, so, yeah, the, 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 I, I was really kind of fortunate, you know, that, that, that Mark destroyed me uh, in that workshop and, uh, and pushed me down another narrative path and to skylight where I ended up. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to talk about any aspect of the book or, or any other thing that I've written or, or anything, really. Um, but yeah, thank you all for coming. It's, been, it's really nice to see you all. Don't be shy. Or be shy, that's fine too. Yes? I haven't read the book, so I can't, can't ask you a question about it, but I did read an article that you wrote for Salon mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, as a, as a person of uh, Latino descent, you know, how's that defined and mm -hmm. the expectation of that. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. And yeah, so the, the question is about a, an article that I wrote in the Salon uh, years ago, I think in 2005. Um, the, uh, basically about about what it's like to be a Latino writer. I mean, I mean, it's a it's a funny thing because uh, in that particular article, I was at a it, it narrates an anecdote. That I think I would probably tell it differently. I think I was a little uncharitable to this woman. Uh, basically, this, this, there was an older white lady. We were at some benefit for for the San Francisco Public Library, and uh, she was just fascinated by the fact that I was Latino and was trying to. You know, it just you know, she imposed all kinds of ridiculous uh, prejudices and assumptions on to me, and was super disappointed when I did not have <laughs> have those. So she asked me uh, first. She she was like, well, "Your last name? Where's it from?" And because she was so persistent, I said, "Well, I, you know." At first, I was just like, "Well, we're from Peru," and then it got more and more intense because she wouldn't let it go. And I was like, "I don't know why I said this, but I was like, oh well, you know." Uh, all the names in Spanish that start with Al used to be, you know, Arabic or Arabic words. And then she's like, oh my God, just like Al-Qaeda. <laughs> and she goes, she goes, that is so topical. That was what she said. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, uh -huh, yeah, yeah, that is topical. Okay. Um, and then uh, she proceeded to ask me if, if my parents were, were, were illegal. She used that. And, uh, you know, how we had crossed the border and all this kinds of stuff. And I, I was just... At, at, at first, I was like trying to be super polite, and then finally, I was like, I was like, look, you know, I grew up in the suburbs. We had cable TV. You know, I went to a good school. We had a lot of books in the house. It was awful. You know, it was awful. And, and still, I managed to grow up to be a Latino writer. It's amazing. Um, and so that's the whole point of the article was just kind of this idea of what people expect you to be if your last name has an accent on it. But I think it's particularly in the United States. You know, I don't think that in Latin America, you don't have to be. If you're a writer and you're Latino, I mean, if you're Latin American and in, in, in a Latin American country, it's not surprising. And you're not assumed to be like some member of the oppressed underclass, you know, writing books to, to represent their people, you know, your people. Um, I mean, th this is not, not to say, I mean, I mean, the thing is, it's a, it's a story that's very important to tell. And it's a very necessary American story, and it's a story that I celebrate. It just happens to not be my story. And the assumption that it is my story is something that I deal with all the time in different ways. So um, my first book had a... Uh, I remember people saying, push back, sort of like, you know, uh, that my author photo, like, you look too white, you know? 
Like you don't look you don't look dark enough. Like people literally said that to me, um, or just you know like kind of lazy assumptions. Like like you know I love Juno Diaz. I love Juno Diaz's work. I think he's you know a, one of the best writers of, of his generation. Um, but you know stylistically and content-wise, we have nothing in common for for obvious reasons. Um, but you know it's like we're always being compared to each other. You know, and it's like I mean it's it's like saying you know. I don't know. I mean, there's any number of sort of parallel, sort of dumb comparisons we could make, you know? Um, that all black writers write the same, or all Asian American writers are, you know, necessarily following the same stylistic, you know, have the same, you know, influences. And, and, I, and I find it kind of silly and, and sort of lazy. Um, having said that, the older I get, the less, like, I wouldn't write that article now. You know, in part because I, I I just don't want to get caught up in these discussions because I, I find them kind of boring, and also because I just the older I get I just realize that everyone's doing the best they can. You know, and it's like that that poor ignorant white woman, God bless her, she didn't mean to offend me. She didn't really even offend me. I just thought it was so ridiculous. You know, like it's really hard to offend me. I don't really get that offended easily, um, and. Uh, uh, so I just, I just now I would just be like I would maybe tell the story to friends and I would laugh about it, but I don't think that I would like make a make a piece out of it, you know. I enjoyed it. And I just, <laughs> it's, the, it's the reason I came and. and uh, oh shit! All right, maybe I'll write more of that snarky stuff. <laughs> I, I identified with a lot of what you were saying, but it, it also crossed my mind that at some point, what if you would, you know, fed into the stereotype? I think I think it's. You know, well, I have to be. Yo, of course, of course. You know, and the thing was, here's the other thing though. I had, I'd been living in New York, right? When my first book came out, uh, I, I was living in New York. I'd worked in, lived in New York for six years. I'd worked in East Harlem and then worked in Central Harlem, and just but a lot of my my early stories, some of my early stories were set in New York, and and they were based around my experiences in New York. They were kind of urban Latino experiences, but they were urban Latino experiences from a guy who had grown up not in New York. Like I wasn't a New York Latino, you know. So I insisted on, uh, just to be clear about that, I insisted on putting in my bio, like, I was raised in Alabama, just because I didn't want anyone to think that I was, like, pretending that I was from the South Bronx or something, you know? Um, and my, my, my publisher kind of wanted me to, like, you know, scratch that out. And I was like, no, no, no. And, and it's not even that I, like, I don't want, I'm not repping Alabama either. Like, in a very, <laughs> in a very real way, like, it's a, it's a complete accident that I was raised in Alabama. And, and, and in fact, if anything, Alabama shaped my identity in a negative way and not in a negative way like like I was put down or othered but more just like I didn't want to be like an Alabama good old boy like it was very clear to me very early that that was not who I was so so it sort of it gave me an example of what I didn't want to be in in, in very 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 uh, uh, specific ways right um, but yeah I do think it's totally important to be honest about who you are and, and I think now I'm 36 and I've written three books, um, and I you know kind of just know I, I don't I don't worry about that anymore you know so like um, I think I'm an American author who writes about Latin America and I'm a Latin American writer who happens to write in English, and if that's confusing then then you know that deal with it you know yeah of course. Tone. I guess what we're thinking about what you just said right now, I mean, I, I, I want to see how enjoy the fact that you just finished this sort of novel, but I'm kind of wondering, like, you know, what, what you're still getting uh, in terms of stories still to be told, you know, like, what you still feel like the stories still need to come from Latin America, or whether you are feeling maybe something different now, in terms of maybe being a more of an American-driven 
like story next for you? Yeah, well, I think that's a good question. I think there are more stories that I want to tell in, in Latin American stories, you know. I think I think I want, I mean, a lot of the work that I want to do now is 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 more journalism, uh, both about the U.S., U.S. Latinos, because, I mean, you know, because I've been lumped in in that category, and I, it is a category that I sort of identify with, I'm very interested and, com and compelled by and moved by the things that are affecting Latinos, you know, not just Im immigration, which I think is only part of it, but economic dislocation and migration and all these other things. Um, so I'm really, I'm really interested in that, um, and I'm, I'm really interested in, in, in radio storytelling, which I, I think is just a, a really great way to, to tell stories that, and, and, and an ability, you know, a book is, is heavy and expensive, you know, and it's particularly expensive, you know, in Peru, this book will cost 55 soles, just like 20, you know, like 27 or 28 dollars, like, like here, except that, you know, wages are much lower, and, um, and so most people can't afford to buy a book, you know? Uh, whereas, you know, you, you put a story on SoundCloud and everyone can listen to it on the internet anywhere, you know? And, uh, and share it and talk about it and they don't have to, you know, feel like, uh, like it's, uh, it's, it's their homework, you know? Um, so I really like that kind of storytelling. Um, I've been, I'm, I'm, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of really important issue stories that I'm interested in right now. I'm really interested in the Dominican-Haitian immigration issue, which is absolutely insane. Like, crazier than any racist thing that, like, you know, the most extreme right-wing, you know, demagogue here in the United States could come up with. But basically, Dominican Republic has retroactively decided to take away... Haitian citizenship, like take away citizenship to people who've emigrated from Haiti like 85 years ago. So if your grandmother was Haitian, if your great-grandmother was Haitian, um, they're going to take away your papers. And of course, Haiti has no resources or ability to take people back, so they're suddenly going to create an entire new stateless population inside Dominican Republic. So we talk about like immigration debates here in the United States and I think we should and we talk about what's just and what's unjust and I think we should and we talk about deportations as being inhuman and they are and we should discuss this. But we should also not think that like this is this is a unique to the United States or that like that that racism is unique to the United States or that um, this kind of destructive you know, xenophobia is, is unique to our culture or to our political situation at all. I mean, it's happening everywhere. And I think it happened so quickly in the DR that it's shocked a lot of people who didn't expect that something like that could ever be a law. I mean, it's so crazy. So that's just like, for example, one story that, that I'm interested in. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.